g'day folks and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 32 of the program where we look at the world of aviation from an Australian Pacific point of view. Well rested and after a few good nights sleep, having put together episode 31, <laughs> boy did I need that rest. <laughs> I'm Steve Visham, with me as always is Grant McHeron. G'day mate. Hey, how you going man? That uh, was quite a tiring exercise, but uh, yeah, we're back on board now and glad to get all the extra content that we had recorded over the last couple of weeks out for our listeners. That's right, this is this is some stuff that's kind of time critical and you'll find out why very soon and then we'll be able to settle down and get ready to produce our next episode, which hopefully should have all our content from the uh, Centenary Air Show at Melton. Yeah, yeah, we've, uh, we've still got quite a few of those uh, little bits and pieces that we recorded at that air show. Uh, which are quite entertaining and quite interesting, but uh, we'll probably have to put that back one more episode. So if you're uh, if you've been waiting to hear that content from the uh, Centenary of Flight Celebrations uh, Air Show at Melton, uh, it is still coming. It's uh, just a little bit delayed. But uh, coming up this week, Grant, a really interesting and timely interview. We're speaking with Peter Gibson. He's the manager of corporate communications for uh, the Civil Aviation Safety Authority, CASA, and uh, he's going to be telling us all about the uh, big airspace changes that are coming on June third. Yeah, these are really big. I I, I was thinking it was just a conversion of the uh, existing five or six gap air, um, aerodromes across to use Class D, but it's way more than that. It's a conversion of the gap aerodromes to Class D, slight changes to existing Class D, and changes at every non-towered aerodrome around the country. This is big stuff. Yep, so this is a must for all you pilots out there, Australian pilots, particularly those of you that use the gap aerodromes, but like Grant says, also uncontrolled fields, which let's face it, is probably all of us. So uh, that'll be the first uh, interview we've got coming up today. We're also going going to be chatting with Owen Zup. We recorded an interview with him last week, just a few days prior to him heading off on his uh, there and back journey. Of course, he's now well underway as we record this. He's uh, probably just popping the wheels down in Perth as we record yep, today. He's, he's actually already down and uh, he's having a relaxing day getting the aircraft checked out and so on in Perth. And also Ken and Tim Grant from the Millions Against Malaria flight. They're finally in the air in the Gippsland Aeronautics Air Van. They were a little bit delayed getting away. They were not able to uh, get away as uh, early as they'd planned to. But we're happy to report that uh, as we record this, they're on their way and they're uh, around the world adventure. So that's really positive news. And we had a bit of a chat to them just a couple of days before they uh, packed everything into the plane to head off. Great to uh, see that two great Aussie adventure flights are underway. So uh, yeah, really great to have a chat with uh, all of the people involved there. Yeah, no, some very good causes and well worthy of a donation or two. Anthony Simmons will be along. A very grumpy Anthony Simmons this week. Uh, <laughs> I think he might have got out of the wrong side of bed when he recorded the view from the lounge number three. That'll be coming up a bit later in the show. And also a new segment this week, Grant Controller's Corner, which will be uh, by our friend Ben Ippolito, ATC Ben, as he likes to call himself on the forums. Of course, those of you who remember back to episode 17, uh, that's probably the most popular episode we've done so far, Grant, where we talk to the air traffic control guys. Yeah, that's that's pretty high up there on the list, but it's not the most popular one. The most downloaded ep- uh, episode episode we've ever done is number one and so it begins almost about to clock the thousand downloads that one yeah but uh Ben and Jeremy is right close behind it. Yeah, so uh, yeah, that was uh, always a, a very, very popular episode, number 17. So uh, uh, Ben has been, Ben's done a recording talking about uh, some specifics about uh, air traffic control, and um, we're going to make that an ongoing segment. So have a bit of a listen to that, and you'll be able to uh, put in some questions, if you have any, for Ben. Uh, he's, he's quite happy to uh, record some extra segments uh, going forward, uh, answering your questions and bringing up any other uh, important air traffic control things that might come to mind. So uh, that'll be coming up. Uh, straight after we've spoken to Owen. So uh, another really packed episode coming up, Grant. I think we ought to kick it off. Sounds good to me. Let's do it. (laughs) 
Okay, folks. Well, uh, there's some major airspace changes coming up in Australia in uh, the ne- in the coming months, and uh, it's very important that uh, all of our listeners, particularly if you're a pilot, uh, are aware of these and are about to uh, hopefully head off to the workshops that CASA are going to put on for us. Uh, today on the line we have Peter Gibson. He's uh, the Civil Aviation Safety Authority's Manager of Corporate Communications. He's joining us on the line from Canberra, I think. Is it, uh, Peter? G'day. How are you? Very well, thank you. Well, thanks for joining us, and uh, must be a very busy time for you at the moment. Well, yeah, as you say, we've got a major uh, education and training campaign uh, underway right now. We're doing, uh, I think, something like 70-odd workshops around the country uh, during the month of May to get uh, pilots ready for these changes to uh, Class D, GAP and non-towered aerodromes that start on June 3 uh, this year. Yeah, so not much time to go. As we're recording this, it's May 7th, so uh, we'll be getting this episode out in a, in a week so that our, our people, everyone can hear it and help spread the word. So there's there's definitely a lot of work, but uh, one of the main ones is the conversion of uh, GAP to Class D. So we have a few listeners from outside of Australia, and some of even some of our Australian listeners aren't uh, always pilots and clued up on what GAP means. So, Peter, can you give us a background on what exactly GAP is and how it's unique to Australia? Well, GAP stands for General Aviation Aerodrome Procedures, and basically it is a set of procedures that was developed uh, in the late 1970s and I think implemented around 1980 for the major training aerodromes. So it covers, these procedures cover uh, Archerfield in Brisbane, uh, Bankstown and Camden in Sydney, uh, Moorabbin in Melbourne, Jandicott in uh, Perth and uh, in Adelaide Parafield. The procedures were designed uh, based on sort of North American, uh, US and Canadian procedures, I think, to handle the large amount of traffic at those aerodromes, particularly the training traffic, the mix of uh, different uh, performance aircraft types. And so, the, the as you say, the procedures did become, the, that we implemented back then in the 1980, were uh, unique to Australia because they were an amalgam of uh, of other procedures and some unique Australian ones. And basically, they've operated well uh, until now, but uh, times have changed, obviously. Aircraft uh, have changed, our view of uh, safety has changed, and uh, we've decided we need to update the procedures at GAP aerodromes, and indeed what we're doing is standardising uh, the GAP procedures with Class D, uh, so you won't have GAP anymore. GAP actually will be a, a terminology that disappears from Australian aviation. So I guess that leads to the question of um, of why are we changing? You, you've sort of touched on it there, a uh, reassessment of safety procedures and so on. Was this at all influenced by the uh, somewhat recent um, incidents at uh, Bankstown and Moorabbin? Yeah, look, a lot of this does flow from the mid-air collisions at uh, both Moorabbin and, uh, and near Bankstown, uh, near two RN near Bankstown. We obviously looked at those accidents, looked at the Australian Transport Safety Bureau reports into those accidents and uh, did a lot of analysis on uh, how we could improve safety and really uh, what we're doing flows from that. We've made a number of changes already last year and then we're now moving, uh, as I say, uh, away from uh, having a, a separate set of gap procedures to a standardised set of uh, Class D procedures which will apply at all the existing Class D aerodromes of which I think there's about 11 and the half a dozen current gap uh, aerodromes. You're saying that it's it's changing to Class D now. My understanding is that there's, there's Class D from the FAA's definition and there's Class D as defined by ICAO. Is this going to be either of those or a, a new hybrid or what, what kind of Class D are we looking at here? Well, the Class D we're moving to is based on the ICAO standards but implementing uh, a number of the characteristics of the United States Federal Aviation Administration uh, Class D procedures. So uh, for anybody who's uh, flown in Class 
Class D airspace in the US, you'll certainly uh, recognise uh, a number of the procedures, but it is based on the ICAO classification, uh, and the ICAO classification for uh, airspace uh, specifies things like communication and separation responsibilities, visual meteorological uh, criteria and uh, clearance requirements and all those things are covered but it's uh, based on the, uh, many of the procedures are based on those in the US or indeed are existing procedures which we've already been using in Australia which uh, indeed came from the US in the first place anyway. If a, if a pilot is used to flying in the current GAP procedures, what are the changes they're going to encounter as we transform on June 3rd to Class D at these uh, six airports? Yeah, look, there's a, a number of uh, changes. They're not radical, we'd have to say. Uh, we're not, uh, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater uh, completely here. We're not asking pilots to uh, totally start again. But you need to be learning things about clearances, two-way radio communication, air traffic control clearance and instructions, circuit entry points, uh, which now in fact become uh, VFR approach points rather than the mandatory uh, circuit entry points, uh, and departure reports and ground movements. All of those things are uh, areas where there will be some sorts of changes. Probably the most important one is that the uh, mandatory circuit entry points now, as I say, become VFR uh, waypoints and you can choose to enter class D airspace from any point uh, although of course you have to be in contact with air traffic control and they may instruct you to go through uh, through a waypoint anyway uh, but that's not mandatory anymore. So like a, an area controller will hand you off to the class D uh, terminal controller that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah you must get a clearance from the class D uh, air traffic control to enter class D airspace and uh, as I say you may be choosing not to use one of the uh, VFR approach points uh, mm -hmm. but they, they well may instruct you to do that anyway. It just depends on the volume of the traffic at the time and, uh, and a whole bunch of other conditions of course. Okay, now, now these are all VFR reporting um, approach points. How, how does Class D behave if it's uh, if VFR is not possible? I mean, we've, we've I'm, I'm not sure at Moorabbin, but I believe we've got some um, NDB approaches and things like that for instrument pilots. Yeah, look, IFR traffic uh, in Class D is provided with full separation from other IFR traffic. So if you're flying IFR, you'll be in contact with the uh, Class D tower, which will be providing you with full separation from other IFR traffic within the Class D area. You'll not get clear you'll not get uh, full separation from the VFR traffic uh, but IFR yeah you're operating fully in air traffic control and um, you know, I don't think there's a lot of difference really uh, certainly not in the current class D um, I'll look at the top of my head I'm not sure how that differs for the gap but certainly that's how it will operate. What about okay. uh, special VFR Peter? Yeah, I think special VFR, you get full cl full clearance again from uh, full separation from, uh, from air traffic control uh, for that as well. Okay, so if we put this in a, um, a real-world scenario, if I was flying into Moorabbin and using, say, the Karam inbound point at the moment, you'd get to the inbound point, you'd call a tower, you know, tell them you've got the ATIS, you're inbound 1,500 and so on and so forth. What will be the procedure now? You will be obviously talking to, would it be Melbourne Centre, Melbourne Approach, something like that? Um, you, well, you'll still be talking to uh, the Class D air traffic control uh, and you'll still be needing to get a clearance to enter the Class D airspace, but you won't necessarily, as I say, have to come through a mandatory control point, but that will you know, depend on obviously what you choose to do and what air traffic control instructs you to do. Uh, but you'll get the clearances, to, you must get a clearance to enter the Class D airspace and then you uh, need the appropriate clearances obviously to land as well. So uh, look, in many respects there's not a huge amount of differences, but, uh, but, but there's enough for pilots all to need to, uh, to get their head around it. 
one of the things that's going to be far more vital, I guess, although it's it's always been important, but it's uh, radio discipline and using the correct terminology uh, is, is going to become far more important now, I guess. Would you agree with that? We certainly are uh, emphasising that uh, in the training and education that you need to make the proper and full radio broadcast in the appropriate, using the appropriate phraseology so that obviously air traffic control can, can be uh, clear about what's going on uh, and all the other traffic as well. So that's important. You know, you've got to understand too that the, you need the appropriate clearances in Class D airspace. Uh, so you need to understand what air traffic control is saying to you uh, and not proceed unless you've got those clearances. Okay, and uh, what about ground procedures, talking to uh, service movement controllers? I'm reading, reading through the, uh, the brochure online here and it's uh, one of the things I see here is that uh, you have to request a taxi, uh, which has not up until now been the case. Um, so that would be, be something that's uh, uh, quite important for people to understand. Yeah, a number of changes to the uh, ground procedures which we're putting in place because uh, we feel that we need to take additional steps to uh, mitigate the risk of accidents on the ground uh, and that's one of them, that's right. You need um, an ATC uh, taxi instruction uh, which will include a holding point uh, and you need a specific clearance to enter, cross or uh, backtrack on a runway. Uh, you also need a specific takeoff clearance so there's a lot of clearances on the ground that you need as well. Uh, very important you don't cross or uh, uh, cross any runways, uh, runways or taxiways without those uh, particular clearances. Well, this do you envisage this uh, leading to an increase in uh, manning in the towers? For instance, at Moorabbin, I think uh, they've, they've sort of been running on reduced staff. I think in, the, in in recent years, will they be increasing the number of controllers in towers such as this? Look, I'm not sure exactly how uh, Air Services Australia are going to uh, going to handle it. Uh, that's a matter for them. Obviously, they've been intimately involved in the development of the new procedures all the way through, so they're well aware of what's being done. Obviously, their controllers uh, are trained uh, to the new procedures, so. They'll be making the appropriate judgments as to the level of services they need to provide and therefore the uh, number of controllers, uh, but uh, certainly they're committed to implementing all this as smoothly as possible. As, as part of the Class D to get, uh, the class D transition, are we going to have um, a 24-hour terminal at these airports? Yeah, um, certainly you're right. The commitment is for uh, service to services to be provided during daylight hours. Um, I'm not off the top of my head I'm aware of any consideration beyond that at this stage. But look, I guess they're, they're the sorts of questions that uh, Air Services Australia will need to look at given um, the volumes of traffic and, uh, and that sort of thing outside daylight hours. But uh, certainly there'll be a post-implementation review of all the changes by CASA. So we'll be looking at um, how pilots are handling the new procedures. Uh, the procedures themselves, are they operating as we intended and all other issues. So they're the sorts of things, of course, we can look at uh, during that review to make sure that uh, everything's operating uh, as smoothly as possible. So, so what does happen to a Class D tower uh, at night? Uh, is CASA expecting that tower to be manned or does it switch back to CTAF? It would go back to being a non-towered aerodrome, so it would go back to being Class G airspace would be my interpretation. So you've just mentioned the non-towered switches back to class class G, but my uh, you mentioned at the start that there, in addition to the gap to class D transition, there's also changes happening to non-towered airports around Australia. Can you can you tell us about that? There are. That's the the other part of the uh, education and training effort we're doing for the June three changes, because on June three you've got gap. Uh, changing to Class D, you've got standardisation of Class D procedures, but you've also got for uh, non-towered aerodromes a range of uh, changes to procedures there as well. Once again, not radical, 
building on the sorts of procedures that pilots already use, but uh, pilots need to get their head across these changes uh, because uh, they do affect, obviously, all non-towered aerodromes, and there are uh, obviously many of those. We're particularly focusing in in terms of education and training on the uh, non-towered aerodromes where you've got a mix of traffic, you've got uh, RPT traffic, private, recreational, all in together, uh, because that's obviously where the highest risks are. And we believe these changes will make uh, a number of improvements. The Civil Aviation Regulations 166, 166A, 167 uh, and a new 166B to E have been uh, changed uh, to make these uh, changes. It's really all about making sure we've got procedures in there that improve situational situational awareness for pilots. So it's now mandatory to carry, uh, carry and use a radio, uh, even though 99 of people would already do that. You know, there can be circumstances currently where at a non-towered aerodrome, uh, an aircraft without a radio can operate. That will no longer be the case. There's some changes to uh, the monitoring and, uh, and radio broadcasting requirements and some small changes to the uh, circuit procedures as well. Once again, you know, having spoken to uh, a number of pilots uh, at the workshops that we've already started to conduct on these, uh, nobody's they're not particularly phased by it. They're not huge changes, but pilots uh, do do need to get their head around them. One of the yeah. uh, one of the uh, changes here is uh, that I notice on the brochure talks about uh, entry points and procedures for entering circuits in these aerodromes. Has there been major changes to those procedures in your view? No, look, there, there are some uh, changes to the circuit and the, uh, the particularly where you can enter the circuit. Um, I haven't got that material right in front of me right Sorry at the moment, so I can't take you through exactly what they are. But there's a, a number of there's a couple of other options now for uh, circuits uh, uh, for joining the circuit that pilots will have. It, it really you know doesn't alter a, a lot in many senses, but it certainly uh, changes that uh, pilots should be aware aware of. The radio procedures are probably equally as important. And once again, as we uh, touched on earlier, very important that pilots make the right radio broadcast use the correct phraseology, make a full broadcast. And one of the things we're emphasising is that it's your uh, regulatory responsibility as a pilot to make a broadcast whenever you feel you need to do so for safety. So, uh, you know, if you feel as though uh, the traffic uh, requires you to make additional broadcasts or you're not sure about something, then you should do it. In fact, you're required to do it. These are pretty big changes. Uh, when first I heard about all this, I thought, okay, it's just gap to class D. This will only really impact everyone flying around or near or into the, the um, those six existing uh, gap aer- aerodromes. But quite clearly, I mean, the, the, this requirement to must have a radio at non-towered airports and standardisation of class D, this is going to affect everyone um, flying in Australia. Yeah, look, it, it does affect everybody. And, uh, you know, really from uh, ultralights, uh, well, balloons even, uh, right up to uh, to RPT uh, traffic. Yeah, there's really no pilot that shouldn't be uh, either getting along to a workshop uh, or reading the material we send in the we send in the post, or getting online to the CASA uh, website and uh, doing the e-learning modules, which will be launched uh, uh, this month uh, on the CASA website, which will take you through both the gap and class D changes and the non-towered aerodrome changes. Really, pilots do need to get their head across all of this before June three, but. I don't think there's any reason for people to panic about it. It's not radical change. It's not difficult change. It's really building on everything that people know and do already and just making some some improvements. 
Sure, and it's all about safety. That's the bottom line, isn't it, uh, Peter? And uh, that's what we're all aiming for here. Yeah, look, it is all about safety. And uh, as I say, particularly for the non-towered aerodromes, it's all about situational awareness. It's all about putting in place procedures which put pilots in a position to have the best possible situational awareness. One of the Civil Aviation Advisory publications associated with the uh, non-towered uh, aerodrome changes is all about that, in fact. It's all about that sort of human factor stuff and situational awareness stuff. And uh, that's obviously vital, particularly at the non-towered aerodromes where we've got a big mix of traffic where you might have uh, a wreck Saab coming in, uh, you might have someone in uh, a GA aircraft and someone in an RAOS aircraft uh, and you've got obviously radically different uh, performance characteristics between those uh, aircraft uh, types, different levels of experience of pilots and all this is aimed at making sure that all those pilots have the best possible awareness of what the other traffic's doing and can maintain their separation safely. Yeah, and I'm, I remember when I started flying, uh, Peter, I started flying in the early 1990s and aerodromes, in particularly around the, the more built-up cities in this country, are certainly a lot busier places now than they were back then. To me, it's 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 probably high time that we, we, we did make these changes in the, in the name of safety. We, we Particularly around places like Moorabbin and up in Sydney with their gap airports, there's such a huge volume now of... of uh, uh, training traffic, you know, student pilots, and uh, it, it really has become a lot busier now, that's for sure. Oh, well, that's right, and uh, as the population grows, uh, hopefully, in fact, that continues to get busier because we want as many people involved in aviation as uh, as possible, so we've got to get the system right so it can cope with the increased uh, amount of traffic, while at the same time allowing people to uh, do all the things they need to do in the uh, simplest possible uh, way, uh, while maintaining uh, safety to the highest standard. So we're, we're trying to get that balance right. Yeah, because that, that does lead to the classic scenarios. You, you hear people, you know, you're having the old hangar flying chats and you, you hear about uh, the situations where an RPT will come in and you get the classic Rex or a Virgin Blue um, E-Jet coming into a place with GA and RA and the RPT traffic's just coming on in because, hey, you know, we're really brilliant professional and the GA guys and RA guys are scattering everywhere and, and then you get the cowboys down the bottom end as well and, and GA and RA, you get a few. It's not it's not just the ultralight guys or anything. You get get the guys who don't even bother turning on their radio and just swan on out there and hopefully all this, this education will get out to those guys. Yes, well, that's right, particularly in the, the case of radio use. You know, anybody who's at these uh, aerodromes and not using their radio will obviously now be uh, be breaking the rules, number one, but number two, emphasising that it's absolutely vital, as you say, in that scenario, particularly where you've got a large RPT aircraft coming in, you know, they're relying on, on you hearing their broadcasts as they uh, get ready for their straight-in approach, and uh, and you're relying on uh, being aware of, uh, of them coming and what effect that has on the circuit traffic, yep. and uh, one of the things we emphasise is, you know, in that situation you don't want circuit traffic just scattering because uh, then, you know, you, you cause all sorts of other risks of uh, of potential mid-air collisions. What you want the circuit traffic doing is being aware of the, RP, the coming RPT straight-in approach, making the appropriate broadcast so that the RPT traffic's aware of you and just following the procedures properly. And if everyone does that properly, you won't have any problems. Now, now, when you're saying non-towered, you're mentioning quite often the RPT traffic mixing in with GA and RA. Now, what about non-towered airports that don't have RPT, i.e. the Lilydales, the Coldstreams? All of this applies to them as well. Oh, yes, it does. It does. It applies uh, to all non-towered aerodromes, but uh, a lot of the focus we're putting, particularly for the education and training, is on those uh, on those ones where you've got the mix in traffic. But, yep. but it, no, it affects everything. So that's why, as you said before, every pilot's got to get their head across all this uh, as, as quickly as possible. Uh, but look, we've sent out a lot of material to people, advisory publications, uh, brochures and so forth. Uh, we've got some DVDs coming. We've also got uh, e-learning modules coming, which will be on uh, the CASA website uh, in the coming weeks. Weeks. 
uh, and all these workshops. So between all that, if you get your head around some of that, even if you don't have a chance to do all of that, uh, I think you'll pick it up pretty quickly. Uh, as I say, from uh, I've been to two non-towered uh, workshops already and uh, the reaction of the pilots at those workshops uh, was positive and also they all said, look, yeah, we understand what's being done here. It's not that difficult. It's not that radical a change from what we do now. Um, we're happy with it. So I don't think people have problems with it, but it is important to, uh, to start learning. One of the things the um, the Yanks have discovered when they're doing these safety sessions and so on is quite they're getting information out to pilots who want to learn. They're getting out to some pilots who suddenly realise they need to learn, but it's getting that information to the pilots who don't want to learn, don't think they need to learn, the, the dreaded cowboys. And, um, yeah, because you've got everything there, so there's absolutely no excuse for not learning it. No, well, that's right. And as I said earlier too, we'll be doing post-implementation uh, review of all this and that will include obviously an element of surveillance. We'll be actually going out and watching uh, traffic at uh, various uh, aerodromes operating. So we'll be aware of what's going on uh, in uh, practice. So, uh, you know, we'll take that into account as well. But uh, look, you know, 99% of people uh, do the right thing. It's yep. just a matter of, uh, of, of being aware of the changes and learning about them. You know, there's plenty of time to do that between now and June 3. And for people who don't fly that often, obviously they've got time after that if they're not planning to fly on June 3. All right, well, that's great, Peter. Just before we sign off here, uh, particularly for our international listeners, could you tell us a bit about CASA in general and uh, what what their role is in uh, Australian airspace uh, or in the management of uh, aviation in this country? Well, in Australia, what we've got is uh, we've got the Air Traffic Control Service Provider, Air Services Australia, separated from the regulator, which is the Civil Aviation Safety Authority. So uh, we at the Civil Aviation Safety Authority uh, develop the regulations, set the standards, uh, implement the regulations, uh, carry out surveillance in the um, uh, where someone uh, breaks the rules, we carry out enforcement. Thankfully, we don't have to do too much of that, but... Sometimes we do. And uh, importantly, also, the other leg of what we do is uh, education and training. That's a very important part of our activities as well. Uh, and, and, of course, we register the aircraft and, uh, and license uh, pilots. So uh, we cover all the regulatory side of things. Air Services Australia run the uh, air traffic control system. And then off uh, the third part of the system is the Australian Transport Safety Bureau, which uh, investigates uh, accidents and incidents and uh, publishes reports and uh, other, other materials. So... Uh, that's the that's the picture of how we operate in Australia, uh, Peter. So, uh, of course, the uh, the uh, web link for people at, uh, to get across to your website that would be at uh, www.casa.gov.au. Correct, and there'll be. Uh, there already is a, a big box, big purple-looking box on the front page, which uh, says June three changes, and it's a matter of just clicking on that, and the various bits and pieces will be linked from there. That's excellent, Peter. Well, um, as I said at the top of this interview, I'm sure it's an extremely busy time for you up there in Canberra getting all this sorted out. Pilots, uh, our listeners, uh, particularly pilots, should uh, get across to CASA's website. Make sure you book yourself in, folks, to one of the uh, the many workshops that CASA is running around the country. And uh, as Peter says, really uh, educate yourself and make sure that uh, uh, you're up with all these changes. They're very, very important, and uh, it's, it's in everybody's best interest that we all understand what they are at the time of implementation. Uh, Peter Gibson... Thanks very much for joining us today and uh, good luck with the uh, with all the ongoing projects there at CASA. Thank you. Give your business a professional edge with promotional solutions from audiovisual media, jingles, jingles radio, ads, radio ads, television, ads, television ads, ads, stunning visual presentations, cards, brochures and catalogues available in print or digital media such as CD or DVD. Audiovisual media. 
a complete solution to your business promotion. Visit our website at www.audiovisualmedia.com.au or call us on 0407091524. Hi, I'm really excited to announce the first ever Matt Hall Racing YouTube video competition. Every month between now and the end of the season, my team is going to award a Matt Hall Racing gift pack for the video they think is the best featuring me. At the end of the year, one of these winners, plus one randomly drawn entrant, will win a flight with me. All you have to do to enter is make a video between one and three minutes long, then send us a link at team at matthallracing.com to let us know that you posted it on YouTube. Good luck. If you're listening to this podcast, chances are you're in the aviation industry. You could also be spending bucket loads of cash on advertising your business. Well, this won't cost you bucket loads. Advertise here on Plane Crazy Down Under, listened to by hundreds of aviation enthusiasts and professionals who might really like to hear about how your business could help theirs. We'll even throw in some advertising on our website as part of the deal. See our affordable rates at www.plainecrazydownunder.com. Just click on the advertising with PCDU link. Okay, folks, well, the kickoff date for the There and Back project that Owen's Up is doing. You've heard the ads on the program every week for about the last six months, and uh, the uh, kickoff date for that's very rapidly approaching. So Owen joins us on the line now to uh, bring us up to date on his final preparations. G'day, Owen. G'day, guys. How are you going? Not too bad, not too bad. It's uh, obviously a hectic time for you now, no doubt. Uh, how's things coming along? Coming along very nicely, actually. It, it is hectic, you're right, but the actual planning and the operational aspects have fairly much been locked in for the last couple of months. It's more the uh, attention to media, uh, ensuring that the camera rig is right for the aircraft, and those sort of technical issues just making sure that they're all in place. The actual planning of the flight, that's, that's been locked in for a little while now. When you say it's locked in, we we sort of heard that there might have been a couple of minor alterations to the to the route, uh, particularly around the Victoria, uh, since last time we spoke to you. What, what's been happening there? Yeah, yeah, we're planning to go through Woomera's airspace was one point, and they've obviously got Department of Defence activity on at the moment, and it's it's very busy there at the moment, to be honest. And I wasn't able to get access to land and overnight at Woomera at that time, so I replanned down through Port Lincoln overnighting there and then along the York Peninsula and at Minlayton it's the hometown of aviation pioneer Harry Butler and he's actually buried there and his old Bristol aircraft is restored there and that township's been fantastically supportive and have offered to come and pick me up at the airport and show me around their town and have morning tea so whilst it's disappointing to lose Woomera, uh, Minlayton looks like a, a bit of a win. The other change obviously as you alluded to in the Victorian region was Point Cook I was hoping to stay the night at Point Cook, but once again, uh, mainly administrative issues came in there in terms of user agreements to be able to leave the aircraft there for the night. So I'll still be calling into Point Cook and seeing those significant aspects of Point Cook that I wanted to and visit the RAAF Museum, but I will depart that afternoon and fly up to Shepparton where I'll overnight that night. So the two major changes, I'll be overnighting at Port Lincoln and going via Minlayton rather than Woomera, and I'll still visit Point Cook, but I'll overnight at Shepparton. Okay, excellent. And uh, we can tell you uh, Grant and I spent a bit of time uh, a few months back up at the at Shepparton at the airport there and they've got a very friendly uh, flying club up there so I'm sure they'll look after you. Oh that's great, that's great. I've got emails from just about every corner of Australia from aero clubs and enthusiasts so far and it's, it's 
shaping up to be a very friendly trip all round. And uh, looking on the website here on uh, thereandback.com.au, uh, under the heading, the Jabiru is complete, which, you know, <laughs> at this late stage we're <laughs> glad to hear, but uh, just looking at some <laughs> photos here, it's it's looking pretty pretty flash. Yeah, I, I had the good fortune to get down to Tamora where it was flown to Natfly, and it, it looks great. It's got a Dynon avionics and a Garmin GPS map in it in the cockpit. Very comfortable, very spacious, and the glass outlook is, is tremendous for the filming I, I want to do. And it performed impeccably on the flight down from Bundaberg to Tamora and back. So it's up there at the moment. It's getting some there and back decals applied to it. And it's ready to go. I'm going up a few days early to see the aircraft and, and run through a few maintenance procedures myself that might help me out of a tight spot, such as changing a wheel, <laughs> etc. But uh, it, yes, it's, it, the aircraft is ready to go and, and I'm ready to get in it. Yeah, it's absolutely awesome looking at that page from the bottom up and seeing it all come together. It, it looks like an airfix kit. And within three weeks, <laughs> they, they had a 120-knot aircraft ready to fly. It was a testament to what that company can do and, and Australian aviation, really. Yeah, yeah it's awesome. going to be a great showcase for it. One of the interesting things I find looking at it is it looks like a wooden propeller. Yes, there's a variety of propellers you can have fitted. Uh, the cruise propeller that I'm going to have I, I, is a wooden propeller. The prop they had down at Tamora had more of a climb pitch on it, and it, it was a a different material again but it comes they've got a whole variety of pillars that you can choose to have fitted to the aircraft no surprise you've gone for cruise <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah well that's the particularly with one person on board that's the the critical aspect of the flight so that's what i've gone for too right yeah you're, you're still managing to keep your uh, gear down so that you can always be full tanks yeah Exactly. It's not too restrictive with one person on board in terms of the gear, but everywhere I'm going, yes, I'll be able to take full tanks, and that's exactly what I'll do. I'll fill it up, and that way it's a known quantity on board, known endurance, and there's no... It just takes one calculation out of the loop that I don't have mm. to juggle with. Yeah, one less stress factor. Yeah, fuel equals time, and time equals options, and that yep. equates to safety. With your experience, Owen, as a flight instructor, and I think you told us the first time we spoke to you that you own a Tomahawk, is that right? That's correct, yes. And obviously you would have spent a lot of time, I guess, in System 152s, which is probably the most obvious comparison, um, given that, uh, apart from the avionics being a lot more modern, how does this aircraft feel to fly compared to the 152? Is it a similar sort of feel? Is it more solid feeling or lighter? Or How, how would you compare the two? Or, or even can you compare the two? Yeah, comparing an aircraft like the Jabiru to Tomahawks or Cessna 150s, the most obvious thing is that the new technology, both in the cockpit and the materials they use, but performance and handling-wise, because of that lighter weight, they seem to have a better performance, and they do feel lighter but aircraft such as the 230 the Jabiru 230D have a really stable feel to them so aerodynamically they've got it right in terms of stability and by being lighter in weight they've got that extra degree of performance so I, I must admit I'm getting tempted to trade the Tomahawk in on one of them. Now you're running this as an RA registered aircraft or a VH? No as an RAA registered okay. yes. One of the one of the questions, actually, just as as an aside, that, that prompted me to ask you uh, about the comparison was the 152. Is uh, when we were all over at the uh, air show at Melton a month or so back, uh, we we noted a Cessna 152 coming in with RAOS registration on it rather than a VH, and I had never seen that before. That's actually, that was probably actually a Cessna 150, mate. Um, the 152 is a little heavy for RAOS, but apparently a a 150 with not a lot of room to spare will fit in under RAOS Gee, weight that's, limit. That's amazing. Yeah, I think Grant's right on that one. I think it's. A 150. 150, and, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, so it's it's the growing avenue of aviation at this time, from what I can see. The membership of RAOs has uh, increased, I think, seventy eight percent or something in the last three years. Yeah, no, they're they're really growing, and they they understand that the way to keep everything happening in the future is just to to get more pilots. It's as simple as that. We need more, yeah, especially no, and, the young ones. And you, you just look through the caliber of the aircraft available now. They're new, great equipment inside. They perform. It it's really holds its hand up to be the uh, the future of, of light aircraft aviation in Australia. Yeah, and for the majority of people, it's what they're doing. It's you know, pilot plus one going for a bit of a fang and you know, a bit of distance occasionally. And you know, people like Baz and people in RAOs who are, who are traveling like that, it's, it's classic. I mean, you know, people talk about, oh, 172's got four seats, but once you put full fuel and a bit of gear with two people, the back seats are just for putting equipment. Yeah, that's, that's one of the rules of thumb you often use with, with GA category aircraft is if you rip the back row of seats out, that's effectively what the aircraft should have been designed to perform with. If you've <laughs> got a, a six-seater twin, it's a good four-seater twin. And if you've got a good four-seater twin, it's a, a good two-seater. It, yeah. If you want to get the, the compromise of range and payload, really that back row of seats is, is almost redundant. You, you can use it for a harbour scenic and that's about it. Now, Owen, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the goals of the flight is to raise funds for the uh, Royal Flying Doctor Service and you've been taking donations for quite some time, even in the lead up to the flight. How's the, uh, how's the donations coming along? It's been going very well. In fact, today's been a, a particularly good day. We launched the online donation facility, I'd say it'd probably be about three to four weeks ago, which gauges in instantaneously what those donations are and it was up to uh, over two thousand dollars as of this morning but i've That's been great. advised during the day that i've been given five hundred dollars to put down on that online facility and i've also got a check for five hundred dollars that'll be going to rfds so we've actually put a thousand dollars on top of that today wow so we're, we're up to three thousand dollars so far and uh the flight is now a week away that's so, awesome yeah and I, I tend to think that the interest will grow once the flight happens and hopefully that interest converts into donations for the Royal Flying Doctor. How much interaction are you going to have with the RFDS on your trip around? Obviously, I guess the further into the outback you go, the more you're at least going to be coming across communities that, that deal with the RFDS a lot, if not uh, dealing with them directly. Yeah, obviously that's going to be the case. And I've had emails from one of the pilots at Mount Isa who said, RFDS pilots that is, who said he'll try and get out to the airfield while I'm there. I've got a number of people who work in those communities who, who relate to RFDS very closely. And they, they've said that they'll come along for that very same reason. And the moment that you say to people, that you're coming through on a fundraising flight for the Royal Flying Doctor Service, they, they can't do enough to help you really. Yeah, no, the, the people in the Outback really get it. They, they know how much they need that service. Yeah, it's, it's a loyalty between both parties that's been built up over 80 years. Yeah. And that, that's built on, on a very solid foundation. So, so what's on your to-do list between now and the 5th? It's the 5th of May, isn't it, that you go? 5th of May, yes. I've, yep. I've already forwarded some of my equipment up to Brisbane already because I'll be flying to Brisbane then driving with with family members from there to Bundaberg. And really, it's it's just ensuring that I have everything that I need to take. I have a, a corner of a room here that I'm piling the <laughs> the items up. And really, there isn't that much to take. As far as what I've still got to go to do, oh, it's really just confirming that I've got the equipment and the charts and the clothing that I need to take on the flight, the emergency ration gear, the life jacket, the water ration containers, etc., that I've got the necessities because in the planning stage, there hasn't been any grand plan in terms of carriage of numerous items. It's been fairly bare basics that there's essential equipment, clothing, and the navigation equipment, and obviously the film gear. So really ensuring that I've got that all in place and, and answering the streams of emails and inquiries from, from media and interested parties too. 
We'll talk about that in just a sec, Owen. Um, when you're talking about the stuff you're packing, one one interesting part, I guess, is that you've got a significant overwater crossing when you're yep. uh, hopping across to Tasmania. I guess uh, what sort of specific survival gear are you going to be carrying on that bit and what sort of a weight penalty? Are you going to be carrying that the whole way or just picking it up, say, at Hamilton before you depart for that? Yeah, no, no, it'll be the whole way. I don't actually go out of range, really. It's, it's island hopping across from the mainland to Tasmania. The requirements for carriage of a life raft is, uh, if if I can uh, quote it, it's, it's a distance equal to 30 minutes at normal cruising speed or 100 nautical miles for the CAOs. So I won't be out of that range at any stage. I'm tracking via islands the whole way across there and there and back. But there is a, a need to carry a life jacket and I'll be carrying one of those. It'll be a yoke style life jacket and I'll also be carrying a, a buoyancy jacket which is a modified flying jacket that has buoyant chambers. It also has a panel that goes down through the groin area to keep the heat in there and assist with the buoyancy and it also has a, a tab that comes across the collar for the same reason and it has a, a bright orange hood on it. So between that the buoyancy uh, aspect should be covered but I won't actually be going out of the, the distance requirements that need me to carry a raft as such. I'll also have that satellite tracking system on board and and that has an alert function, which when I hit the button, should anything go wrong, it updates my position every 30 seconds until my ground speed falls below 30 knots. And it automatically sends emails and text messages off to three or four designated phone numbers and email addresses. On top of that, I'll have my own ELT, obviously. So, That's a pretty impressive bit of kit. Well, yeah, the, the thing is, there's backups on backups. And I want to mm. ensure that people are aware that it, it's not just a jaunt. It's been planned and safety has been premium the whole time. So I've got the safety equipment on my person. I've got the spider track system that also has an alert function and I've got the ELT and you've still got your VHF comms at the time. So hopefully all that won't be used at all. Yeah, hopefully not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but it's there if it needs to be. Okay, and just before we finish up, mate, uh, you were talking a bit about the media and, and uh, some of the media gear that you've got to carry with you and some of the challenges you've come across there. But how's the mainstream media been uh, been treating you? Have you had enough publicity, you think, or how's, how's that been it, going? I, it's been a learning experience for me because I planned the media in the same fashion that I'd planned the flight. Many months out, making contact, getting all the, the ducks in a row. But media, as it turns out, isn't like that. Media wants it to be fresh and new. So whilst I contacted a lot of people, it's really only been in the last week that a lot of them have been getting back to me. They've obviously noted it on their calendar mm. and then with a week to run gone, is it still happening? Because they say a lot of the time they have these adventure flights or, or boat trips, etc., that they get told about and then when they go to it, the date's changed or it hasn't occurred and they, if they've been working on the build-up, then it's all to no avail. Yeah. So they have actually been hitting me pretty consistently this week. ABC Radio right around the country. I've already done ABC Radio with Canberra and I've done 4BC up in uh, Queensland. But in every state, the regional radio stations are either doing interviews prior to the flight or prior to the flight and during the flight. And a number of them are coming out to the airports. There's also in the offing the, the possibility of TV coverage. There's been the print media, obviously, through Australian Aviation Magazine and others. But it seems to all be coming together in this last week or two. And I'm being told by people in the media that that's quite normal for the, the way that media schedule it. Hmm. So if, if I was to do another exercise, I'd, I'd pay attention to that because uh, four or five months out, just the nature 
nature of the beast, they're not overly interested at that time. But uh, you'll be recording uh, your trip in many ways, but you're doing it by video. So you were telling us just before we started here that you know, you've know uh, you been having to learn a lot very quickly about storing uh, HD video on your MacBook and all this sort of stuff. Yeah, I've um, had to learn a lot about technology, which you guys are probably au okay with, but I'm not. But in terms of recording it, I have the HD cameras on board, which I've, I've worked out a really good mounting system that works with the Jabiru tremendously in that way because it can pan from the, the front windscreen right around down through the side windscreen and I'll get some tremendous perspectives there but also at the end of each day I've got Robert Bruss back in you could call it operational command he'll be um, putting together the still images and the video footage that I'll be sending back in snippets at the end of each day's flying and that will all go onto the website and get updated so that yeah it, there will be the HD production of the DVD at the end of the flight but also during the flight there's going to be regular updates well daily updates with of photos and footage so uh, and I could have some some interesting news breaking about that as well in the next two or three days so if I um, have that come to light I'll let you guys know first absolutely oh, thanks <laughs> yeah but uh, yeah so through the website you, you'll be able to keep up with it every six minutes through the satellite tracking and every day through photos and video awesome yeah the main video obviously will be produced post flight and that'll be in, in DVD form alright mate well we probably should wrap it up there it's been just a fascinating journey uh, just learning about this flight and, and, and talking with you over the, the planning stages Owen and watching the aircraft come together and the, the route it's, it's really been fascinating so we really just want to wish you the best of luck for the flight we hope you have a, a ball of a time and that you uh, achieve all the goals that you're setting out to to achieve here and I'm, sh- I'm sure you will and um, when you pop down here to Victoria uh, we're going to encourage uh, all of our listeners to uh, come up to Shepparton or Point Cook or even Hamilton you're stopping in at Hamilton in Victoria uh, and yeah, all other points around Australia uh, hop onto the website folks thereandback.com.au uh, Owen's route map is uh, there for everybody to check out and uh, we just encourage all of our listeners to to get out there and uh, support Owen in his trip thanks very much guys you've been uh, on board pretty much from the first days of planning so it's been great that the guys from playing crazy down under have been so supportive and it has been a journey hasn't it uh, watching it actually <laughs> grow from a, a, an idea and a concept and and there's been so many people behind it as I said Robert Bruss has been integral with his work through the website and, and everything else he's done to support and obviously my family and my wife as well so it, it's it's been a journey but it's been very enjoyable and uh it's getting close now. As my father used to say, the hardest bit about aviation is getting the wheels one inch off the ground. <laughs> <laughs> that is after, so true. After that, it gets easy. So, um, <laughs> now thanks for your support. Hopefully, we might be able to have a chat while I'm on the way around. And when I get back, definitely, we'll, we'll have a, a catch-up as well because uh, oh, there'll, there'll surely be some tales to tell. Yep. And any of your, your um, listeners who want to come out and say day and see the aeroplane, even if it's just a refueling stop, more than welcome. We're trying to spread the word of aviation in this country. That's right. That's what we're all trying to do here. So, Owen, uh, all the best for your trip. And uh, as yeah, you're right, we'll talk to you en route and we'll talk to you certainly when you get back. Great. Thanks, guys. Cheers, cool. mate. Cheers, mate. Thanks. All the best. Cheers. Controller's Corner with Ben Ippolito. G'day and welcome to the Controller's Corner. 
segment where we try and demystify some of the parts of air traffic control. Firstly, a little bit about me. My name's Ben, and I'm an air traffic controller at the Onroute Control Centre here in Melbourne, Australia. I've been a qualified air traffic controller for six months now. After the completion of all my training through the academy and the field training segments, which we've discussed with Grant and Steve and my course mate from Course 25, Jeremy, in a previous PCD episode, later segments will hopefully have Jeremy back to discuss things as they apply to his airspace. An appropriate topic to start with is misconceptions. As an air traffic controller, when people find out what you do, there are two most popular phrases that come after that. The first of which is, oh, so you work in a tower? The second is, oh, you're the guy with the ping-pong bat. Neither of these are correct for most air traffic controllers. The majority of us are actually en-route air traffic controllers, which is what Jeremy and I are. That means we work in a screen-based environment in a large room at Melbourne Airport, and all of our traffic is observed on a screen. Not all of it is on radar necessarily, but all our targets are on the screen. We have the ability to display air traffic that's not on radar with an approximate position which assists us in keeping the picture when we're doing procedural control. Tower controllers are still an essential part of our service. As far as civilian air traffic controllers go in Australia, there are currently 27 locations where we have tower controllers and soon to be 29 locations with the inclusion of the new towers which are coming online later this year in Broome and Caratha in northwestern Western Australia. There are also seven civilian terminal control units provided at different capital cities throughout the country. Canberra and Gold Coast are done remotely in the two air traffic control centres in Melbourne and Brisbane respectively. The others are located on site at the respective airports of Perth, Adelaide, Sydney and Cairns. There are some other control units, but they're all military-based and provided by the Royal Australian Air Force. And as far as the guys with the ping-pong bats, they're airline ground handlers provided by the airlines themselves and nothing to do with air traffic control whatsoever. The next most popular comment that we get is that our job must be very stressful, which is the common perception. This is true to a certain extent. However, it's only stressful for usually relatively short periods of time when we have bursts of traffic during the day or if we have a significant weather event like the storms that came through Sydney or Melbourne recently. And as much as they're causing havoc on the ground, they're also causing havoc in the air because airliners do not fly through that kind of weather. They certainly try and do their best to avoid it. In a way, the job is actually only as stressful as you make it. If you stay ahead of the game, make a good plan and ensure that the plan is working, the job's relatively easy. That said, there's not everyone that can keep the plan in their head whilst all the distractions are going on that's also part of the job. There's also a common misconception that air traffic controllers aren't allowed to make any mistakes. And this is untrue. Whilst we try to avoid mistakes like everybody else, we do make them from time to time. The trick is to catch them before they become big mistakes. In human factors, I've often seen reference to a phrase about expert decision makers, which air traffic controllers, pilots, race car drivers are referred to as. They say that an expert decision maker is a person that, whilst doesn't get the decision correct 100% of the time, avoids really bad decisions. So whilst we may not have the perfect solution to, say, get somebody to a feeder fix exactly on time, we'll avoid a really bad decision, which would involve a breakdown of separation. The next misconception I want to cover is about what we actually do. In Australia, we don't have a flight service facility anymore. We got rid of that about 10 years ago. Only recently, in the last couple of years, got rid of our flight watch VHF coverage still provided on HF frequencies, but they've removed all the separate VHF frequencies that we used to send aeroplanes to for things like flight plan amendments, weather updates, and other services like that. So Australian air traffic controllers don't just control air traffic in controlled airspace. The airspace that my group covers has a lot of uncontrolled airspace. 
which the general public doesn't think there is any uncontrolled airspace, but there's actually quite a lot of it. Most of the airspace below 18,000 feet over continental Australia is uncontrolled, and in this airspace we provide traffic information services to IFR aircraft, and VFR aircraft, when they're in radar coverage, can also get some traffic information. We also provide things like amended weather forecasts, NOTAMs that have come up on short notice, and also, most importantly, the SAR alerting function that we perform, where we play a vital link in initiating search and rescue action on mostly IFR but also communications checks on VFR aircraft that have missed a search and rescue time has been lodged. So unlike the movie Pushing Tin, it's not all about controlled airspace and vectoring big heavy jets. Most of my day is spent dealing with what we affectionately call bug smashers, the light general aviation aircraft, singles and twins that come across my airspace at low levels outside of controlled airspace. The other thing we do a lot of is coordination. No, not hand-eye coordination, but coordination between controllers themselves. In fact, a lot of our day is actually spent talking to each other rather than to the pilots. A lot of things have to be coordinated between controllers for a flight proceeding between their airspaces. For example, an aircraft in controlled airspace who wants to climb or descend near the boundary, I need to coordinate that to the next sector. This ensures that the airspace is safe in both the receiving sector's airspace and my own. There are other things that we coordinate, like handovers of reporting schedules, status of nav aids, and airspaces. Before I was an air traffic controller, I was a pilot, and I always used to think that this time between a request and it being granted was the controller just having another sip of coffee or figuring out the next answer in the crossword. Now, on the other side of the scope, I know their true answer. They're not taking a drink of coffee at all, and the crossword's nowhere to be seen. Air traffic control is simply making sure that I'm not going to run into the 747 that's in the next sector. A couple of things that are true, though. Air traffic controllers can talk very, very fast. Too fast for our own good, highlighted by the recent Defence Force recruiting ad for air traffic controllers for the Air Force. We do talk that fast sometimes. Sometimes we have to. We try not to do it on the radio because it ends up with more say-agains than it would have if we had have just set it at normal speed and we've saved no time at all. The other two things that are interlinked that air traffic controllers do very well is we have the ability to listen to sometimes two or three conversations at once and be able to keep a track of all three. During busy periods at the console, it's not uncommon to have the supervisor over your shoulder telling you about delays somewhere, someone else on the coordination lines, and an aircraft trying to talk to you all at the same time. And aside from being good at keeping aeroplanes apart, controllers have the uncanny ability to carry out an interrupted conversation. This means that we can have a conversation that may last an hour, that should have taken 10 minutes, but we keep getting interrupted by coordination lines and radio traffic, but most of the time the joke was worth it. That's it for this segment of Controllers Corner. If you have any comments or feedback or anything you'd like to have explained from this side of the radio, send on your emails to grantsteve at the PCDU email address or put them in the PCDU forum at downwind.com.au and we'll put them in the list to cover in a future episode. For now, I'm ATC Ben and I hope to see you in my sky. Flight experience 556, you're cleared for takeoff. Imagine sitting in a pilot's seat, flying past London Bridge or the Eiffel Tower, and landing at just about any airport. It's not just a flying experience, it's flight experience. From the roar of the engines to amazing visuals, flight experience puts you in control of a 737 flight simulator. It's so real, your senses actually believe you're flying. For more information, go online to flightexperience.com.au or call 1-800-737-800. Flight experience, the ultimate flying experience. 
Hi, I'm Stuart Stevenson, a.k.a. Pilot Stu, from the Pilot's Journey podcast. And I'm Stuart Stoll, a.k.a. CFI Stu, inviting you to join us for the Pilot's Journey podcast, where we discuss aviation, proficiency, and most of all, enjoying the journey. You can find us in iTunes or at pilotsjourneypodcast.com. And don't forget to enjoy the journey. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you're listening in from. I'm Saad Ahmed from FleetBuzzEditorial.com, and I'm here with the guys from Plane Crazy Down Under, and we hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, folks, back in early March, you might remember that we spoke to Ken Evers and Tim Price about the Millions Against Malaria flight, and they were about to head off at that time. They've had a couple of slight hitches in getting off the ground, but we're happy to say that they're about to head off definitely this time, so we've got them back on the line to just have a bit of a chat about what's happening with their trip and how the preparations are going. Ken and Tim, how are you going? Good, thank yeah, you. Yeah, great. So uh, where are we at, guys? Uh, what's the uh, the revised kickoff date and what uh, we might talk about, some of the delays you had in a minute and how everything's sort of come together for you? The new date is... Is, uh, only a few days away actually it's on the 8th of May uh, with the takeoff uh, launch starting at 11.30 uh, we've got a ceremony there with some politicians coming in and also some of our sponsors arriving um, to do some talks and then Tim and I will jump on the plane and uh, hopefully have wheels off the ground at about quarter past half past 12. Yeah always always a bit of a bit of a fun scenario when you've got uh, dignitaries there as well to watch it puts a bit of a bit of time <laughs> pressure on you to get off the ground. Yeah I think so I've got to talk to Tim about this today actually we're going to be up in the air so we've got a stack of things to talk to him about but what we'll probably do is get the plane warmed up so where we can, once we jump in, people aren't sitting there staring at the plane for 10, 15 <laughs> minutes so we can get it up and cracking yeah. and get the plane doing what people think planes are doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they've all seen those shows where everyone jumps in, fires it over and takes off straight away. <laughs> yeah, and then yeah. we stand and crack it on the way through. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was that? Bang! <laughs> yeah. I knew I needed something. <laughs> now, you took delivery of the plane only recently, I understand. Um, is that correct? Yep, that's correct. Okay. Tim, Tim brought it home, so... Excellent. So uh, how's it how's it feel to fly and it's all running well? Everything's all, all, good, all good to go with it? Yeah, it uh, performed quite well, um, just like you'd expect an air van to, I suppose. It's um, a bit like a year to the sky. Um, but no, it went quite well. We, uh, it was after dark before we could get going and uh, and then uh, getting stickers on it yesterday ended up almost dark uh, coming back through us, through the uh, rain yesterday. So I already had a good run. So they yeah, given it a wash and everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's had a wash and it's been initiated after dark and uh, even saw lightning around, so... Yeah, thought we're already underway. We'll give you a chance to get all the instruments, all uh, make sure they're all, all working out. No, no, uh, no better way to do it than to uh, jump right into the uh, into the soup. Yeah, no, it's working out quite quite well that way. And um, yeah, heading off again today to uh, do another couple of interviews and and uh, a little bit more on the on the logos on the side, so we'll be able to uh, learn the instruments a little bit better. Last time we spoke to you, you uh, were telling us about the uh, the huge amount of support that you've you've got from sponsors and from private donors. How's that gone since we spoke to you last? Have you managed to, uh, you've obviously managed to pick up the extra funding that you've needed. Um, was there any extra sponsors that came on board to help you out with that? Yes, look, we've been quite humbled with the, with the number of people that have come on board and, and um, to be quite frank, we're still chasing funding as well. We'll probably be passing the can around as we take off, actually. We, we've had people from literally all over the world uh, jump in and give a hand. We've had a company by the name of Mahindra Engineering Services. Uh, they've put in $50,000 to the flight, um, which, you know, as you can imagine, is a huge boost. And then we've had people, uh, we've even had a knackery, uh, a cattle knackery, uh-huh. uh, call up and put in $5,000. And uh, Airlines PNG have put in, you know, 5000 And And the people that have come on board, 
you know, there's been a lot of them now. Um, for me, and I know for Tim as well, it's been quite humbling that people from all over the world would, would do that. We had a chap um, call up from Brazil, and uh, he said, look, as soon as you arrive in Brazil, all your accommodation feels paid for. And that, and that makes it, you know, um, quite an experience that people would do that for us. Having, you know, that is great. Having airlines P&G, is, uh, that's, that would be quite significant, I guess, guys, because, um, you know, that's where a lot of your, uh, as you were saying the last time we spoke to you, your heart's sort of set in, in P&G, so it's, it's great to know that, uh, obviously, you're getting a bit of uh, public publicity up there and um, Airlines PNG is probably one of the major businesses up there so it's great that they've come on board for you. It has been, yes. Cool. Excuse me. Um, it, with, with Airlines PNG, I mean, you, you said it perfectly. Um, I, I know for Tim and I that um, Papua New Guinea is, is a place that's very near and dear to our heart and uh, it, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's quite a feeling of pride to have that on the side of the aircraft and, and uh, I know when we're in Papua New Guinea we're certainly going to be um, really highlighting the fact of the investment of, of Airlines PNG and also Skytrans. Um, they also put in a bit of money as well. Um, so that, that's been fantastic. And, and actually, um, QBE have been, been superb with, with their sponsorship. And, and they're also quite heavily involved in, in uh, using the situation to, to raise um, funds for malaria right there in Papua New Guinea. Excellent. Is, it, is there any space left on the aircraft, guys? It sounds like you must have a lot of, a lot of logos <laughs> well, on it now. Do you want to sponsor the air? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we can get that two millimeter square. Just <laughs> <laughs> There's certainly space, and, um, and uh, yeah, once again, I was even this morning talking to a chap who's looking at becoming involved, and, and uh, we've got a little bit of time in the States, and if anyone wants to come involved, I'm thinking about um, actually getting ex- extra logos added in the United States while we're waiting. Cool. So there's always what's, always room. In fact, if you wanted bit? to, we can land in Cairns on the way home and get one more logo put on and come <laughs> <laughs> from Cairns with an extra logo. <laughs> what, what's the cost per square inch for a logo? <laughs> Who's asking? <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> if, if it's you, I know I know how much money you make. So it's about a, a 1.3 mil per square inch. <laughs> oh, damn. Who told you? <laughs> it's called Google. <laughs> <laughs> Dang. He's, they're onto us, Steve. They're onto us. <laughs> I must look at that site myself. I didn't know I was worth that much. Oh, mate, it's, it's ever since we crossed uh, 600 listeners per episode, I tell you. It's just oh, got yeah, put, our, yeah. put our shares through the roof. <laughs> <laughs> so, guys, guys, what, what tasks are left to do? I mean, we've only got a – it's Wednesday now. You're, um, you're leaving on Saturday. I know, the, I know the pace is ramping up. How many, how many things are left to do? What, what major tasks and things? I think the, the biggest task, I mean, I'll, I'll let Tim talk in, in one second because um, I tend to talk too much. Um, but the biggest task for me is, is just finalising the CASA special flight permit. Um, so that, that's been a little tricky, make sure all the engineering orders are in line because, we've look, to be quite honest with you, CASA have been absolutely fantastic. Great. And, uh, the, the chap, uh, Brian Cole and, and Tim Penny, who's our local safety advisor here, uh, yes, they've just been incredible um, because, yeah, kind of caught us a little bit unawares with this permit because we, we thought it had already been... Uh, arranged, Oops. and then when we found out that it didn't, that it hadn't been arranged, uh, we had to kind of action all stations. And you know, I know this Casa don't get this very much, but I really can't speak highly enough of them with the way they've jumped in and, and given us a hand to make this happen. So we still haven't got it yet, but um, they've just been superb with uh, guiding us and with what we need to do and what paperwork they need. And there's been none of this government language um, about you know, if you dot this I and put the T this way and hold your mouth this way. They just said, look, we need this paperwork. This is yep. where it is. This is what you're going to send us. And that's been a huge help. And well, Tim's got a bit to go as well. Is that going to be a potential blocker for the flight or is it going to all, is it okay to, to depart? I don't, look, I'm touching every bit of wood I can get my hand on. <laughs> um, 
I don't believe so. They, they've been um, that they're quite confident that provided um, they can get from Gippsland Aeronautics the paperwork that they need, mm-hmm. that they can get that uh, they can get that permit through. Uh, but in saying that, I'm certainly not speaking for Cassia, and I'm hoping as we speak, actually, that the last bit of paperwork's being sent to them. <laughs> If worst comes to worst, we get to Wollongong and we wait 24 hours, but I certainly don't want that because of our permit situation. No, it's, it's, at least you can do the departure from, from Victoria and, and just hold, hold tight in Australia one more day. So that's that's good to have an out there that doesn't, uh, you know, there's nothing worse than telling the dignitaries, uh, can we delay a week? <laughs> Especially when you do it the second time. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, no, we've already been... done that once, don't want to do it again. <laughs> it has been that kind of setup, hasn't it? I suppose as far as uh, as far as getting ready for me, it's um, got a little business running here with a couple of employees, so I'm trying to uh, get the wife uh, to be able to handle all that, and I was hoping that this week I'd uh, be able to really nail that down, and now with uh, all these interviews and uh, flying around trying to get logos and stuff it's uh, feels like i'm getting squeezed time wise uh, mm. so that's the, the main thing i'm um, hitting so we're trying to have i'm basically trying to have friday where it's just uh, the last minute little things yep um not doing anything else on friday yeah good luck don't tell anyone we said that though okay no we can cut that bit out yeah <laughs> <laughs> friday's our secret day <laughs> i don't worry this 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 won't come out before friday so you're okay no one's going to hear it until <laughs> after your right, secrets I'll, I'll, I'll give you that money later. <laughs> Beautiful, mate. Uh, that was going to be that two millimetre square logo, wasn't it? That's right. That's exactly right. Right underneath the wheel pants. <laughs> oh, cool. Everyone will see us as you fly over. Exactly right. right. You've got a good magnifying glass on your telescope. Well, you, know, you know our logo. There's still that from. place on the side of the pod where the oil spills. We've <laughs> <laughs> still got that available. Well, you, you, know our, uh, you know our theme, of, you know, our catchy phrase that when we sign off each show is it's what's down under the count, so you know you can plaster all over the belly of your plane. That's okay. Just fly really, really low. Right, that's all. Right. <laughs> Excellent. No, this, this is cool. It's uh, uh, we were just speaking to Owen the other day because I mean he's he's starting his flight actually How's right now. Yeah, he's he's good. He's uh, he's supposed to be leaving um, Bundaberg right now, the ten o'clock departure time. I uh, haven't gone to check the spider tracks just yet, but um, he should be get pretty close to on his way. But he was saying that the media all came out of the woodwork right at the very end. Um, you know, yep. he'd been in touch with them for ages, but he said, yeah, typical typical scenario with the media. If if it's too far away, they're not really worried about it until it's right on the spot. And sure enough, he's been kept very busy this week with fielding all the media. That's what we found. I mean, naturally, we love talking to you over anyone else. So talking to you is just not a concern whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) You owe me that money. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, well, there you go. Balance is even. (laughs) Now we've got to go and buy an airplane to put their logo on, Grant. (laughs) The two-millimeter logo. It's going to be a small airplane. (laughs) I've got this little model on my stand, right? Yeah, Yeah, as long as you fly it low. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, then. We found, found too, with uh, with the media that, just now, like just this morning, I've got a whole stack of emails that have come in. So, like, can we interview you, you know, before you take off? And I'm mm. thinking, mm, that should be quite interesting. <laughs> mm. Because, like, yeah, like Tim, um, Friday for me is, is you know, it, it's, a, it's a day that I'm keeping, trying to keep very, very clear from anything. Because uh, last time I get to see the wife and kids for a couple of months. And, um, yeah, so, and, and I've got to say that this flight, well, I think, in a, in a way, would be impossible to do without the support of the, the support of our wives because, um, you know, in a sense, they almost have the the harder task. You know, we we keeping very busy and flat out and yep. trying 
trying to get everything arranged where they've got to and sometimes just sit back and, and watch and be patient with us and I feel bad for Tim yesterday he was supposed to be going up there and helping him with those logos and I got tied up with Cassa and you yeah. don't get home until 10 or 11 o'clock at night and then up at 5 o'clock in the morning back on the emails back on the phone and so yeah I can't speak highly enough of my wife for putting up with that because she's been doing that for the last 12 months while I've been trying to get this flight arranged so. <laughs> Interesting that you talk there about Cassa now of course you'll be flying into the United States and you know of course we've spoken a lot on this show over recent months about how difficult it is to get into the United States these days with all their regulations, all their security theatre and all this sort of stuff. How are you going to go for doing that? I mean, what arrangements arrangements have been made with the uh, uh, Homeland Security people or, or whoever you'd need to speak to there? Funny you mention that. I've been on the phone to FAA this morning for about half an hour. To be honest, I haven't... Hang on, I better be careful saying this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually haven't found too much of a problem with it because the, the paperwork's quite clear what you need to do. You need a, a, a TSA waiver... And then you've got to get the um, the other thing you've got to do is is get the, your also your visa waiver as well. And I found that um, when I was speaking to the TSA chap this morning, that if you follow their paperwork religiously, you know this is what we're going to do, this is where we're coming from, this is how it's going to be. And I was on the phone to him this morning about a, a small change in in the plan, and, and they were very very accommodating. Um, and I just found that as long as I was I wasn't trying to hide anything from him mm. and spell it exactly what I was going to do and why I was doing it. But to be honest, the chap I spoke to today was phenomenally helpful. Almost went out of his way, really, to make sure that I had everything I needed. And, and I think, too, it helps when you explain to them what the flight is about. And when you say it's the first Australian-made plane to fly around the world, the, the people in the United States seem to really have a lot of time for Australians. And, and uh, once the chap heard that, he was just, yeah, 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 look, this is what you need to do, this is what you need to do, fill out this paperwork. And the permits do take... They're hard to fill in. They're, they're a long permit. I think if you take your time and and just write out, and if it's if it's if it's a question, and you make sure you answer it and answer it in totality, the, the, I didn't have a problem with them at all. Cool. Good to hear. No, that's, but it's, I haven't it's gone through there yet, so I'm saying yeah. this before I fly through. <laughs> Yeah, keep touching, keep touching all those wooden things around you, mate. Exactly, <laughs> including my head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's my first protocol. Touch wood, hit my head. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, it's interesting that the um, Americans are still interested in, and happy with Australians, despite Steve and I living there and the Oz Desk and this podcast and everything. But so we didn't mention we were speaking to you. Oh yeah, it's probably a wise move. <laughs> <laughs> Good move. <laughs> yeah, they'll never let us back in there now, surely. I yeah. did see your your pictures on the uh, at Los Angeles airport with big red circles and a cross right through it. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, tried, I thought I'd pulled all them down when I was there the other last year. <laughs> yeah, no, the word's getting around. Oh, dear. <laughs> So, so guys, uh, regarding when you are in the U.S., given we've got a few U.S. listeners, what stops are you making at this stage? Um, we'll be stopping in uh, uh, Mojave for the um, aircraft service in California, yeah. and then uh, over to McNeil, Arizona, and then up to Phoenix for a day, and then uh, out through New Orleans. Okay, well, um, I guess if any of our listeners are around, they can hop on your webpage, check what days you're going to be there, and uh, try and come by to say hi. Yeah, we'd love to see them. That'd be great. Okay, guys, that's probably touched on everything. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to, to add? We'll look forward to talking to you uh, probably during the flight if we can. That'll be yeah. fantastic. I can, yeah. I can flick you the satellite phone number and it'd be, it'd be great if we can catch up with you briefly while we're, while we're flying through. Yeah, if you yeah. want to uh, give us updates, and we'll, we've, we've put a link to your site on our website, but uh, we, yep. can, we can put updates in our Twitter feed and all this sort of stuff. Yeah, it'd be great to, great to get you guys on a couple of times while you're stooging around and find out what the latest news is. 
Sounds great. Yeah, cool. it'd be great. And uh, when you get back, we might make our way up. We might do a day trip up your way and um, come and meet you in person and uh, bring the recorder and you can tell us all about it. Yeah, after you've had a few days to recover and all that kind of stuff. Okay, folks. Well, that probably just about touches on everything we need to talk to the guys about. The uh, the flight is departing on Saturday, May the 8th from uh, Bendigo and uh, heading off around the world. So we encourage all our listeners to get out there and support Ken and Tim. Their website is millionsagainstmalaria.com. So uh, if you haven't already visited that website, uh, certainly get across there. There's a link off our homepage if uh, anybody wants to go and have a look and uh, leave the guys a donation. It's a very, very worthy cause that they're supporting. They're uh, trying to raise awareness about uh, malaria research and uh, how we can stop this terrible disease. So uh, we really encourage our listeners to to get behind these guys and uh, what an adventure they're about to embark on. Ken and Tim, we wish we were coming with you and uh, all the best of luck to you guys. Thank you. In the not-too-distant, I'm off to Europe and the United Kingdom, and as the departure date is imminent, and having just returned from my recent flight to Canberra, I've started to think about the journey, and despite my excitement, there are certain things associated with flying that really get on my goat. So rather than let them fester, here's a list in no particular order of the actions and foibles that make me loathe airline travel. I'm Anthony Simmons, and this is The View from the Lounge. As I fly infrequently, I still get a frisson of excitement when I'm going on a trip, especially overseas. Yet as a young fogey, there are certain things that really get my dander up. For instance, take the ubiquitous mobile telephony device. Mine's usually turned off in the boarding lounge and doesn't get switched on again until I need it. But not for the corporate warrior. No, they're yabbering on and texting until the call comes over the tannoy to turn the damn things off. Then, when permission is granted to reactivate these intrusive devices, your average capitalist crusader has fired up the Wi-Phone or Raspberry or whatever you call these stupid things, and I'm assaulted with electronic beeps, bongs and bings, and inundated with meaningless drivel about ramping the market. Dead cat bounce. Program-specific selective synergies, or the such like. Unless, during the course of the flight, you've discovered a cure for cancer, formulated a simple and easy method of achieving world peace, or come up with the perfect martini recipe, just shut up. I refuse to believe that anything in the business world is so important that it needs to be phoned into head office 3.2 picoseconds after landing. Wait until you're in the cab home. These are members of the same tribe that are out of their seats like jackrabbits and into the overhead lockers, champing at the bit to exit the plane as soon as you finish taxiing. To the best of my knowledge, you don't get a medal and a bunch of flowers to be first off the aircraft, so take it easy and wait your turn. We all want to get off. Can we just do it in an orderly and measured fashion? Then there are the odious individuals that jump the gun when the plane is boarded in blocks of rows. What's the point? Your seat is your seat. No one's going to steal it. Getting on the plane sooner isn't going to make it leave any quicker. And people, please, can we resurrect the long-lost art of queuing? It's one of the hallmarks of civilised society, yet everything goes to hell in a handbasket at the departure gate. It's like a rugby scrum with Samsonite. A word to Virgin and Jetstar, the two lowish cost carriers I've flown with in Australia. 
I don't need to be entertained by the cabin crew. The zany antics, the crazy carry-on, the quirky quips do nothing more than highlight your abominable lack of service. All I'm after is the cabin crew to be personable and a beer, not some hyperactive 20-something rap and a safety demonstration or making inane jokes about their colleagues' nicknames. I'm an adult, not a kindergarten student. Treat me as such. As I've got a long-haul flight coming up, 14 hours straight from Melbourne to Dubai, I'll have with me a fairly hefty tome of dubious literary value. I'm more than happy to exchange pleasantries with the person in the seat next to me, the hi, how are you, travel often, doesn't this nasty lemmick taste like reconstituted cat sick, that sort of thing. But once my nose is firmly planted in the latest masterpiece from some two-bit pulp merchant, I do not want to be subjected to a 10-hour haranguing about your stunning collection of concretions, thunder eggs and geodes, the mating habits of the Drosophila fly, or that your grandchildren, Dwayne and Darlene, have recently started walking, won the local primary school egg and spoon race, or avoided their first courtroom conviction. Leave me be with my book and my Bloody Mary. Passengers who have the headphone volume set to ear-shattering levels. Annoying children. People who get in a raging snit because the low-fat, soy-based, gluten-free meal option isn't available. The list goes on. To all of the above, a pox on both your houses. I'm quite sure that everybody has some little bugbear regarding airline travel, so feel free to add your own contributions. Anyway, banging a kettle like this isn't going to do my blood pressure any favours, so I'll just think about accentuating the positives and eliminating the negatives about my up-and-coming flight, which, like it or not, you will be hearing about. And that's the view from the lounge. Oh, the 94. Excellent heart and soul medication. Well, heck, we've been asked to say something good about the podcast down under. Does anybody have anything? No, let's talk about our own podcast instead. You mean the Airplane Geeks? The Airplane Geeks podcast. You mean the, us? The people that taught the people down under how to do it. You mean the people who speak normally? That's right. And where can people find the Airplane Geeks podcast? Airplane that would be www.airplanegeeks.com. Dot com. And we know how to take care of our friends. We don't let people train us and then just kind of try to one-up them with a better podcast. We don't That's do right. that. No. We're staying at our mediocre level That's where right. we belong. We know our place in the world. <laughs> Long live mediocrity. That's right. PCDU, we actively encourage participation from our audience. To leave a comment or suggestion, or for further information on how you can support the podcast, please visit our website at www.plaincrazydownunder.com. 
And welcome back, folks. Well, I hope you enjoyed all those segments, and particularly the controller's corner. Grant, I thought that came across pretty well. Ben, uh, he's pretty nervous about how that will be received, just as Anthony was uh, when he put the first view from the lounge in. But as you can see, despite Anthony's grumpiness, it sounds like uh, he's doing well with the view from the lounge. And I can tell you, as we record this, he's done another five. So we've got plenty oh, in the oh, tank. Oh, oh, man. Awesome. <laughs> really entertaining. So, yeah, folks, um, just uh, thinking about the segment there that uh, Ben's done about uh, air traffic control, if you've got any questions, anything you've wanted to know about how things work from the other side of the scope well Benjamin he's uh, quite happy to uh, answer any of your questions so uh, playing crazy down under at gmail.com folks if you want to send us in some questions we'll pass those on to Ben and we'll get him to uh, record another segment based on your questions excellent Yes, so moving right along, just uh, thinking of Anthony there, I wonder how he survived that trip, mate. It sounds like he really wasn't looking forward to that flight. Well, you know, some days you're looking forward to him, some days you're not. Mm, no, he didn't sound too happy at all, did he? Well, we'll make a, we'll make an airplane geek out of him one way or the other. I mean, you've always got to be looking forward to the flight. Personally, that's the part of the, my holidays that I look forward to the most. Ah, okay. Particularly the takeoffs and the landings. Anyway. Yeah, I prefer to be up the front. Yeah. I miss those days. I prefer to be off the ground. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> well, I suppose that's everything we've got. Uh, oh, hang on a minute. I hear somebody coming. Uh-oh. Oh, mailbag. Is that the midnight posty again? It's the midnight posty. It is nearly midnight too. Actually, we're recording a little bit early by our standards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's because i got stuff to do tomorrow. Yeah, it's normally the 1am posty or the 2am posty. or <laughs> however late we record these things. <laughs> Okay, we've uh, we haven't had a lot of listener mail lately, but uh, however, our uh, our anonymous friend from Canberra has been emailing us, Grant. Yeah, that, that's right. He was emailing us a while back about Brindabella closing their flight school and uh, let us know well in advance that uh, it wasn't looking good. And sure enough, the news came up, and we've got indications that uh, the folks at Brindabella are gnashing their teeth, um, according to an article in the um, Australian Aviation magazine, our favourite flying magazine. Absolutely. In fact, probably our favourite magazine of all times. But anyhow. Brenda Bella Airlines CEO Jeff Boyd is a little upset and a little frustrated with the government at the moment because they were told that uh, Canberra was never going to have another airport. Canberra Airport kept uh, increasing their rate, uh, rents on hangars and parking spaces and so naturally that just pushed all the light aircraft out. And so uh, Brenda Bella turned around and said, well, there's no point in staying here. We'll just close it. You're not going to have another airport. Well, guess what? Within a few months of Brenda Bella closing their operations, the um, Australian Capital Territory Government has allocated $50,000 to conduct a feasibility study into developing a general aviation airport at Williamsdale to Canberra's south. Now, our friend in Canberra did indicate to us that uh, he had just stumbled across the Canberra Region Aviators Association, the CRAA, which you can get to by going to crAA.org.au, and they are all very excited about the fact that uh, there's the potential for a whole new uh, secondary airport in the Canberra region because right now, if you want to fly light aircraft in the Canberra area, apparently you've got to drive quite a way, like we're talking over 150 kilometres, to get out to Maruya um, Aero Club where there's um, some good aircraft to fly and so on. There is Goulburn in the area as well, but most people apparently are going to Maruya. Yeah, and although Canberra is a small place, of course, but, you know, it is our capital city and really, you know, we really do need to, if it's one place that we do need to have a strong aviation uh, presence, it's certainly there where all the politicians are so that if for no other reason, Grant, we can make the point to these people uh, who've neglected this sector for so long, let's face it, um, that uh, aviation is important, and particularly for Canberra, which, let's face it, is quite remote uh, <laughs> from the rest of civilization. I mean, that's part of the problem with politicians living up there and uh, sort of losing a bit of touch with the real world. In their own deranged world. Well, that's exactly right. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, well, if he's upset with politicians, he can just join the queue, I suppose, the way things are going at the moment. But yeah, there are quite a few people who are rather upset with people in and out of power in the pol political world at the moment, but... Uh, 
yeah, look, my cynical self says, oh, maybe a um, politician's kid wanted to learn to fly and they suddenly realised they couldn't do it at, uh, in Canberra anymore. Yeah, well, uh. yeah, well, works for me. Whatever works. Maybe all their kids should get inter- interested in aviation. But, uh, yeah, the Canberra Region Aviators Association, folks, uh, that's at crwa.org.au. So we'd really encourage, uh, particularly if you live around that area and, and you're interested in aviation, of course, I guess you wouldn't be listening to this show otherwise. So, uh, yeah, get out and support these guys. Uh, what they're doing there sounds uh, like a really positive thing. Definitely. Yeah, so Grant, we'll leave it there for listener mail. As I said, we haven't had a lot of, we haven't had so much mail. We do get a lot of uh, a lot of traffic on Twitter, which is great to see. Yeah, um, we... But sure, if you uh, you know if you've, you've got questions you want answered, or you know if you've got suggestions for things you'd like us to check out, or if you you know if you know of a good aviation personality in your part of Australia or New Zealand that uh, you'd like us to interview, well, uh, crazy down under at gmail.com is the address to let us know about that. Uh, of course, we're always looking around for uh, you know new people to interview and uh, new subjects to uh, cover on the show so uh, that's the way to let us know folks we, we love to interact with the audience that's what this show is all about making a, a community of, uh, of listeners and aviators and people interested in the field so uh, please let oh, us know if you uh, what you mean it's not for me to fluff up my ego well well you know you can do that too if you like grant oh okay cool thanks i was getting a bit worried there <laughs> yes no no your ego's intact it's all right oh cool it's <laughs> the reason why i like open cockpit aircraft mate oh i'm not even going there anyway let's move on to <laughs> shout outs mate let's move on to shout outs before we start getting into trouble <laughs> Anyhow, yes, shout-outs. Okay, you may remember back a few, uh, or many episodes ago now, and we were talking about shows that we like to listen to. And, uh, of course, one of my favourite podcasts, in fact, it's a bit sad in a way that it's only a podcast now because it used to be on the ABC radio as well. That's the wonderful science show by Stuart Gary called Star Stuff. Well, uh, a big shout-out there to Stuart because uh, very recently he's um, made his way onto Twitter. And you can now follow Star Stuff on Twitter, Grant. That's right. He has a Twitter feed, and it's ABC Star Stuff. Unfortunately, Star Stuff was already taken, and that has to do with um, the more transient ephemeral stars that uh, grace our uh, silver screens and TVs and so on. But uh, if, if you want to get the latest and really cool uh, astronomy and uh, cosmology and various other science aspects of uh, the world, especially with an Australian point of view, Hop on to Stuart's ABC Star Stuff Twitter yep. feed. Yep, one of the best, uh, one of the best science podcasts in the world, I'll say. And the other cool thing about Stuart Gary is he's also a pilot, and uh, I know he was listening to some of our earlier shows. I, I hope he's, uh, I hope he's still part of our audience. Unfortunately, due to his uh, contractual arrangements with the ABC, he's not able to appear on this show. We have already canvassed that. If you don't listen to it, well, do yourselves a favour, folks, and uh, put that one in your list. Yeah, worth making some time for. Okay, another shout out here, Grant, to our uh, one of our listeners over in the West and uh, it was interesting Grant to get over there to, to WA when I was covering the Red Bull Air Race uh, just to see uh, what sort of uh, market penetration we've got over there and uh, <laughs> we have got a huge listener base over in the West in fact I think we've got more listeners over in New Zealand than we've got in Western Australia but uh, one of our listeners over there is Ed Stubbs and Ed's been uh, sending us all sorts of great information lately uh, particularly about uh, the movements of the former Ozjet aircraft which have been going in and out of Jandakar. Uh. Yeah, yeah, because there's one permanently based at Jandicott now, isn't there? Yeah, and it looks to me, Grant, like uh, just yeah, Ed actually sent us a link to a YouTube video showing uh, that that aircraft arriving recently. So uh, we might just pop a link to that in the show notes. Uh, of course, those are very, very old seven three sevens. They're two seven six advanced models, so very, very old. Um, got the old sort of long engines on them. I'm not sure the engine type on those uh, those very early ones, but uh, certainly they don't bear much resemblance at all to the uh, kind of uh, flattened nacelles the that they're running on the. Uh, you know, on the eight and nine hundreds or seven hundreds uh, these days. But the interesting thing was they've also these this particular aircraft has an N number on it. It's got an American registration, so uh, not sure. Yeah, maybe one that was transferred to the um, American rego and then just 
sail fell through, that kind of thing. As far as I know, it's being used for um, for engineering and so on. It's not going to fly again. Okay. Yeah, so there you go. So uh, thanks very much for that, Ed, for all the information uh, that you sent us, and, um, uh, and keep it up, mate. And I should just touch on that, Grant. We uh, we did put a little um, post on the uh, on the website uh, a month or two back now talking about how you can help to uh, promote Playing Crazy Down Under if you'd like to get more of your flying friends to listen to the show, and we'd certainly appreciate your help in promoting it. Uh, one way you can do it is to download a little A5 flyer that Grant created. Uh, if you can put, you know, download it, print it off and put it up on the wall in your flying club or wherever else, uh, that'd be um, and particularly over there in Western Australia, Australia, where we, uh, of course, we can't get over there too often to promote the show because it is a long way away. But uh, we would hope we maybe can do that, you know, in the next six months or so. Maybe take a quick trip over there and uh, do the tour of the airport rather than gazing at the Red Bull Air Race. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that'll be that'll be great. I'd like to get over to Perth and uh, check it out. I've never been. Yeah, it's a really cool place. Um, so what we might do, Grant, I'll uh, we'll get to, we'll get you to um, bump that post back up to the top of the uh, the website there because it's it's sort of. Well, Funny you should mention that because it's actually on the right-hand side um, in the important information section. As you uh, scroll down the page, on the right-hand side, there's beasts called important information. You've got about us, our favorite episodes, and how you can help PCDU. It's the uh-huh. third, third entry in the list, second major red one. You click on that, and that takes you to the uh, flyer. The more listeners we get, well, that just makes us feel really good, doesn't it, Grant? <laughs> <laughs> the more listeners we get, the more likely we're to, we're to put, keep putting more effort into keep making it even better. Yeah, that's right. And if you haven't checked out our website lately, we have uh, made a few changes on there now and jazzed it up. And when I say we, I mean Grant, because I've got no idea how to do that. But uh, uh, you, you were like, fix it, change it. Yes. Do this. That's how I fix it. I, I call Grant, folks, and I say, Grant, we need to do this, and he does it. So there you go. That's <laughs> yeah, all good. It's, uh, I've been an IT geek for a very, very long time, um, hacking the web since 93, So and was online long before then. So, yeah, yeah it's, um, it's, it's fun. Yeah, Still, there you go. Sort of, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> Not as fun as being a podcaster, though, that's for sure. Well, it's fun because it's supporting the podcast and it's because it's supporting my aviation fix, so yeah. And uh, that just about wraps it up, everybody. But just before we go, just a quick update from Owen's Up, which which we recorded this afternoon. And uh, where was he, Grant? I think he was in Kalgoorlie. Yeah, that's right. He, uh, we spoke to him in Kalgoorlie while he was stopping off to get some fuel and have a chat to a couple of people there. And then he was flying on to Forest a little bit closer to us. He's on the uh, eastbound leg of the journey, about to head south, though, and head down towards the waters of the Great Australian Bight, around through the Adelaide area and down further towards uh, uh, Tasmania before he comes back up through Melbourne and on back home to uh, finish the run at Bundaberg. Okay, so let's have a quick listen to what Owen had to say live in the field. How's it all going? Oh, it's going very well, mate. It's um, all running to schedule so far. The aircraft performing, and uh, there haven't been too many curl balls that have been thrown me. And it, the ones that I have had, I've been able to sort of improvise, adapt, and overcome. <laughs> so um, it's it's going pretty well. And looking at synoptic chart, I think I'll be able to keep ahead of the the weather for the next few days anyway. So timing looks to have worked out as well. Awesome. Cool. So, Owen, uh, whereabouts are you at the moment? I'm at Kalgoorlie Boulder in Western Australia, having departed Perth this morning and uh, from here very shortly I'll start up again and fly to Forest on the Nullarbor. Beautiful, beautiful. So uh, you've been getting a lot of uh, publicity, you're getting the, the you know the, the sort of interest that you'd hope for so far? Yeah, the, the publicity actually has um, gone up almost exponentially in the last week. Uh, a lot of that's due to um, someone who's working on that pretty much full time who's come on to assist me with that, which is tremendous. Um, but it it's, uh, just gets bigger and bigger at the moment. I, I think each 
news outlet might hear it on another one and, and just continue to, to spread the word. But it's been great. In, in, but prior to departure, I had all the TV channels up there and the Courier Mail and all the various newspapers and the News Mail and ABC Radio right across the country, everywhere I've gone just about. And um, this morning I spoke to Alan Jones on 2GB in Sydney and on Sunday morning I'm speaking to Macca on the ABC, which I, I believe goes national as well. So it, it's it's quite uh, an aspect of the trip that requires a bit of planning and management as well. Indeed. The, uh, I'm just looking at uh, the link for the Donate to the Doctor and it's showing uh, almost just under $4,000 raised so far on the online system. So that's awesome. It is. It is. And I've had um, notification too that there's a, a few checks in the mail as well because um, people great. can also, if they haven't got the ability to donate online, can, can send a check in. I'm not quite sure what those sums are because they're sealed at the moment at home and no one has, has checked them just for the moment. But uh, it, it's it's looking like, considering I'm six, seven days into the trip, that uh, the $10,000 target, it's attainable. That's awesome. Very good news. The um, the other the other thing I've been watching online is the uh, spider tracks, track, tracing system, and it's it's been great when I've been at home uh, watching the little dots move along and <laughs> leave its little trail as you as you fly around Australia. It was it was quite fl- funny on the first day. I was watching your progress and noticed that you were totally cutting off Rockhampton. I was like, hey, that wasn't on the schedule. <laughs> it was yeah, the yeah, I, it was um, just uh, getting out of. Uh um, Bundaberg uh, and looking at the time I had to get to Longreach because I wanted to make it for the Founders Museum closed for the day. Yeah. So I thought, well, I'll just, that, that saved me about 15 minutes, that, that slight diversion. And uh, now it's one of the most popular aspects of the trip by the messages and texts and emails that I'm getting about the flight is everyone's sort of watching me on there now. And, and now there's this iPhone application. Uh, there's a number of people that are getting it and they can follow it on their phone as well, which is... <laughs> But it's pretty handy for them and probably a little bit spooky for me. But, I was going to um, ask. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 the common question I get is that uh, you're doing this solo and I always say, yes, I am, but I've got the internet on the back seat. <laughs> so um, yeah. there's nowhere to hide. <laughs> yeah, you've got that feeling of someone looking over your shoulder as you're on short final. <laughs> yeah, so, no, it's, it's, it's been great. That's been one of the really... Um, points of interest for people who are following the flight. And um, did the you, you stopped at Jandicott and the guys did, uh, out there did some maintenance on the Jabiru. Did they find anything? Is it all um, humming along nicely? Yeah, it is. I actually said to them, look, don't do too much. I said, it's running perfectly. But they, um, <laughs> they, they changed the oils and uh, the filters and check tyre pressures and all, all those fundamental things that you do say on a 50 hourly, not, not a full 100 hourly overhaul, but it was, we thought seeing it was midway round and it it is travelling long distances at the time. We just give it a health checkup, and uh, it came out with flying colours. It's, it's hardly burning any oil whatsoever. The fuel consumption is better than book figures, and the TAS is right up around 120 knots consistently. So it's performing very well. That's awesome. So, so what altitudes are you getting to as you're cruising along? Most of the time, I'm sitting at four and a half thousand feet. Okay. Uh, the, there are certain things with RAA that mention about going above five thousand due to duress of terrain, etc. in the event of an engine failure. So generally flying below 5,000 and trying to pick the winds. I had up to 41 knots of wind today, but it was mainly a beam. So um, fortunately it wasn't on the nose. But it's uh, 4,500 feet seems to be quite a good compromise to get the the best TAS out of the aircraft given the limitation of the 5,000 feet operating it. And uh, it it hums along there with the revs and the fuel burn. So 
I'll be sitting there as much as I can. Of course, we don't mean to be critical at all, Owen, but you know we did, we did manage to get underneath and sprawl our website address on the bottom if you're playing. So maybe you could just keep it down to about fifteen hundred, so everyone underground could see it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I won't say people keep saying what's PDUC. So you've obviously made a mistake there. Oh no, <laughs> uh, Steve. Uh, well, I can't spell. I can't. Make, I can't think of everything, Grant. Oh no, this is yeah. this is what happens when we leave the boys to do it because they're the only ones who could fit under it. Oh yeah. That's right. <laughs> so, mate, you're, you're, um, what, what was special about Kalgoorlie where you're at at the moment? Oh, for, from my perspective, the fact that the weather's beautiful. <laughs> as, a, as a person who's wanting to stay on schedule, that's obviously the first and foremost aspect. But I come, I do come here with work, and, and the scenery is amazing when you look at the um, mine sites and they're very close to the airport as well. They're, they're cavernous, but the yeah. terrain has been one of the features the whole way around the country. The diversity, the, the rich green areas in, in areas of the outback where I don't think they've been green for a long while. Okay, yeah, there's yeah. been a lot of rain lately, hasn't there? Yeah, and I remember flying in the outback years ago as a young bloke, and um, you, you're always looking for a forced landing field, and you're also looking well if I do go down where's the nearest water and that really wasn't an issue in a lot of places where yeah. it used to be this trip I was sort of flying along and I'd still see these little billabongs and uh, bends in the river and they actually had water in them so it's, wow. it's looking very healthy up there at the moment. Cool. Any any um, major highlights so far from the trip that are standing out? Uh, I, Catherine was probably a highlight in that I did had the opportunity to meet with the Air Force there and uh, they had an F-18 Hornet they put out on the Open 75 Squadron, and that was a squadron that my own father had served with um, in peacetime after he'd come back from Korea. And the Air Force were kind enough to donate $500 oh, to wow. the RFES. And then on the same day, I, I had a group of 60 school children to speak to at Catherine. So <laughs> that was a fairly busy day, but it, it was very satisfying to see the interest in the flight and the support from the Australian Air Force for the, the RFDS. So that was probably a highlight in, in the trip sense thus far and and my wife turning up as a surprise in Perth obviously for our wedding anniversary yesterday was also another, another oh, that's highlight cool. oh excellent yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's cool so well, she's um, on her way back in seat 1A and so am I there <laughs> <laughs> you go so uh, so what's what's coming ahead now what what, what are some of the highlights that we can ex- that people can expect to hear about on your site from Forest we're, we're going down to Port Lincoln there's a little place there that um, you'll see and it's got Minleton and it's got uh, a Bristol aircraft preserve that belonged okay. to Captain ha- Harry Butler there. Uh, Point Cook obviously is a highlight and in terms of the website I, I guess the things to watch are there'll be more photos coming up. There's, looks like we're going to put a, a, a sort of composite bid will be coming up on the site as well oh, cool. and we also launched a um, auction last night for a shirt that I had Ricky Ponting the Australian cricket captain sign. Yep. Uh, there and back shirts. There's only a few there and back shirts getting around, and Ricky was good enough to sign one of those for me at Bradman Oval. And that, that's gone up, and that'll be a fundraising exercise for the Flying Doctor as well. So that's only just hitting the website today, I think. So all of these things are, are happening, but you, if you keep an eye on it, there's going to be more and more. And, and I can probably tell you um, that people are asking me about books and all sorts of things now. So oh, cool. <laughs> any advice that I. I do decide to go down that road. I'll pop up on the website. So the blog will continue on a daily basis. Excellent. All right, mate. Well, uh, if we keep chatting to you now, we'll have nothing to chat about to you when you get back. So uh, we're, uh, we're, we're, <laughs> we're looking forward to meeting you at Point Cook. Uh, we'll be there uh, on, on Sunday. And, That'll uh, be great. I'm looking to get in there. The Flying Doctor is having a, an, a 
a bit of an event because it's the anniversary of the RFDS Foundation on that morning at Launceston. But I hope to get into um, Point Cook about 12.30 so that I'm on the ground before the flying display, obviously, that they generally yeah. have on the Sunday. So, yeah, I'll be there about 12.30. Anyone who wants to come out and say good day and have a look at the Jabberoo firsthand is, is more than welcome. Excellent. Well, we'll be there, and uh, we certainly hope uh, all of our listeners that are in the Melbourne area can uh, get down there and meet Owen and uh, finally see this plane we've been talking about for so for so long. <laughs> that sounds great, fellas. All right, mate. All the best with your flight, and uh, we'll, we look forward to seeing you soon. Okay, then. I'll, I'll see you soon, guys. Take care. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Bye-bye. Yeah, so there we go, uh, Grant. That was interesting, wasn't it? And of course, uh, you know, this is not live radio, so when we recorded the interview with Owen, we sort of intended it to be out maybe last week, which so it would have made a little bit more sense time-wise. But uh, anyway, it's it's great to see that everything's going so well for him on the flight. No, it is excellent, and uh, it's I think it's a tribute to his planning and organisation skills. It's it's all just flowing. Yep, excellent. So, uh, folks, uh, if you're in the Melbourne area, uh, we will be at uh, the Point Cook RAF base, RAF Point Cook, out there. Uh, just near Hoppers Crossing in Melbourne. If you're not familiar with where it is, uh, look it up. Uh, like Owen said, he plans to be there about 12.30 on the 16th. That's May the 16th. Yep. Uh, we want to get down and meet him and meet us. Uh, that's where we'll be. So we'll, we'll, uh, we'll certainly hope that uh, all of our listeners can get down there. And uh, I believe they're having a fly-in that day too. Uh, the RAF Museum uh, do a fly-in about once a month, I think. No, actually, they do it weekly. They do, um, I think it's Tuesdays, Thursdays and Sundays. They do a little bit of a flying demo. Well, there you go, folks. Shows how much I know. But, uh, yeah, they'll be doing that that day. So uh, let's uh, let's all get out there and meet Owen. That'll be great. In the meantime, folks, when you're looking around the world of online aviation podcasts, just remember this. It's what's down under that counts. You've been listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran. Show notes, links to our forum, Facebook fan page, YouTube channel, and Grant and Steve's own blogs can be found on our website, www.planecrazydownunder.com or keep up with our Twitter handle of PCDU. Comments or feedback can be left on our website or email us at plainecrazydownunder at gmail.com. If you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the show, feel free to assist via the donate button on the website. Any contributions are most gratefully appreciated. Incidental music and sound effects are courtesy of soundsnap.com and title music is You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson. Production and editing by Grant McCarran. folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. All me, 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 you and me, always together. Oh, God. And there's blooper number one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, good day, folks. Blooper number three. Yeah, and action.
Yeah, we're already overloaded, sorry. <laughs> You'd be way overloaded if I was in there, I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they've seen our photos, dude. <laughs> no. <laughs> I keep telling you to take to those King Air. <laughs> All right, Yeah, we could, we've been thinking about putting some photos in the windows to make it look like there's a few passengers. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Frozen in fear. <laughs> what you want to do is um, you want to say, these people paid a million dollars for this ride, but you could do it for a lot less. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you're good. <laughs> yeah. Episode 32 of the program where we look at the world of aviation from an Australia Pacific point of view. Thinking of something witty to say. We've <laughs> heard <laughs> number four. <laughs> and there was a sound of silence as Google was impacted by our searches. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, the pipe to the US just went. Ooh. <laughs> Yeah, that's right, man. <laughs> Start that one again. Talking to Owens up a little bit further, uh, a little bit. Is it? Scrap all that. Let's start that again. Okay, Philip. Okay. Uh,